0: I want to have you turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 1. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 1, my message earlier today was really more of a lecture, some important historical information and consideration on the topic of sentimentalism in the church. <clears throat> I'm not going to give you a lecture now. And ironically, those that I'm speaking to are probably not here today. I hope they're listening. But I am going to speak primarily to pastors in this message. Ironically, i not being here, but my prayer for you as church members is that you share this message with your pastors as needed. But what I'm addressing is a topic that affects the entire local church, shepherds and the sheep. What is the duty of the church's shepherds? What is the duty of the qualified pastors of the local church Now, our conference today is aimed at giving an alternative perspective concerning the influencer's material, and we do hold them responsible for much. They are responsible for putting themselves forward as spiritual leaders when they're wholly unqualified. They're responsible for presenting themselves as legitimate. Um, Just because you can make T-shirts, hats, and bracelets doesn't mean you're legitimate. However, I, I would put them in second place as far as Who is culpable? Who's responsible? In first place, even more culpable for allowing doctrinal error and heterodoxy into the local church, the pastors, the shepherds, the elders who have allowed this to happen. Maybe we'll even put in the category of leaders of Christian schools. And we praise the Lord that we've seen good movement in that direction here Just to reiterate what's been said before, the New Testament recognizes two offices in the church, two only, both with qualifications, both approved by other qualified men, the office of elder, overseer, or pastor, and the office of deacon, the official servant in the church. That's it. The office of elder, or pastor, or overseer, bishop in older languages, is the person primarily tasked with shepherding God's people. Pastor Chad did a beautiful job making that case this morning. This doesn't mean that all believers can't be involved in discipleship at some level, but the primary discipler of the flock is to be the qualified shepherds. And you don't get to qualify yourself. The influencers claim to make disciples that it's all about discipleship. But the disciple maker, it's already been made clear, is a teacher of the Word of God. The journey's leader guide is very clear, and, and it literally is in all caps you are not teachers to the leaders. That's actually anti discipleship. First of all, I think it's important to reveal what the written materials of the influencer says about pastors and about preaching. Concerning pastors, the only biblically recognized shepherding office in the church of Jesus Christ, the journey to the inner chamber characterizes them as follows. The book places pastors in the category of what they call mentors. Now, page 29 of the journey to the inner chamber. The idea is to grow past the need for mentors, pastors. And you've heard this referenced already to become a self-feeder. Please understand that's not just saying people should read their Bibles. We understand that. I'll address that in a moment. That's saying that you move beyond the need for shepherds. And you might say, nobody really believes that. Quote from page 35: Lerner was growing into a self-feeder. He still needed, and I want you to pay attention to this phrase, he still needed the occasional touch of a mentor. Remember, a mentor is a pastor. The occasional touch of a mentor to help him. This is very different than the admonitions of pastors in the New Testament. The New Testament knows no idea of the occasional touch. The composite amount of time that the three speakers today have spent in school, I don't even want to know about. I don't want to add that up. It's a lot of time. We're not here to just give an occasional touch. The New Testament doesn't acknowledge that. That's what... The influencers believe about pastors. Now, I'll say this. I will say that in meeting with some of the local influencers' men, um, they've said, no, we, we love pastors. We, we're, we're, we respect that. Right up to the point where we say you're wrong. What about preaching? The journey to the inner chamber characterizes preaching as anemic, powerless, and inadequate. Listen. Quote, I had found it so easy to get all of my feeding in God's word from the great teaching I received in church. But this diet was not enough to grow me. In fact, it was barely enough to sustain me. Evidence, by the way, I would fall back toward my old sinful nature as the week passed. By the way, do you call someone who hears great preaching on Sunday and by Monday he's back to his old ways, we would call that an unregenerate person. So, All preaching is good for is a slight emotional charge that lasts a day or two. That's all it's good for. That's according to their materials. Now, I would agree with one thing. All bad and anemic preaching is good for is a slight emotional charge that lasts a day or two. But contrary to this view of pastors and preaching, preaching is presented in Scripture as the primary means of sanctification and change. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, I think every one of us is reading this in every message. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, give the occasional touch. No, preach the word. That's not occasional. In season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience, which is a word meaning with repetition over and over and over again. And so I would agree that pastors who are failing in this duty do open up people in their church to be hungry for something else. To see groups like the influencers as filling a need. And So this message is for two groups. First of all, it is for pastors. And secondly, it is for church members to evaluate their pastors. I was so thankful to hear earlier that church members in a church that is not feeding them need to reform the church. They need to make waves. It is not rebellious to go to your pastor and say, I'm starving spiritually, what are you going to do about it? I'm reluctant to say this, but I'm going to say it just for this particular occasion. I've had the privilege of teaching and preaching the Bible now in my 39th year of doing so. In my 27th year as a senior pastor, a preaching pastor, I only say that to tell you I'm going to exercise a little bit of counsel and a little bit of advice. And I'm not doing so as a youngster shooting from the hip. Dr. Ligon Duncan said that our time is, quote, as toxic a time for faith as has ever existed in my lifetime. Culture is harder on faith than ever before. And one of the negative impacts of our culture is the loss of the grasp of the vital importance of preaching. And now we have some insidious, counterfeit preaching methods that have made their way into the pulpits of countless churches. One method is called the New Homiletic. It's a preaching method. It's an approach to preaching which says that authority doesn't lie in the Bible itself, but in the emotional experience that happens between the preacher and the congregation. That if I come and I I sit on the edge here and swing my legs and kind of look like I'm, I'm really relating to you, that that's the power of preaching. There's charismatic preaching. This is man-centered and pastor-centered preaching, which continually blasphemes God by presenting God as a winning lottery ticket instead of the holy triune God of the universe. There's analogical preaching. Analogical preaching means using the Bible as a pretext to bounce off of to what the preacher actually wants to say. The Bible story is just an analogy Or an illustration to give the preacher's opinion. There's no actual exegesis. There's no actual explanation of the text of Scripture. And it jumps very quickly to what the man wants to say instead of explaining what God wants to say. And then there's sentimental preaching. You can probably guess from my earlier message what this is. This is devotional feelings oriented preaching. This is the style of preaching that says God smiles when we love him and and he longs for our love, that it's, it's making you feel good. This is preaching which does not explain the text in its context and immediately misuses a Bible text to always be all about you. And amazingly, it's always positive. And maybe jump to a light, easy gospel which pictures Jesus as nothing more than a friendly Sunday school portrait who wants to be your BFF. This is the preaching which dominates so many churches. It's toxic, it's deadly, and it's poisonous. You want to know why? Because it's soft preaching that produces hard hearts. I can easily make the case that the primary duty of the pastor is to preach and teach. We could look at 2 Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 5, many others. I think that will be made clear as we progress. I want to organize our thoughts around two ideas, briefly on one and much longer on the second one. The first idea is, why preaching matters. And the second idea, how to preach a sermon. And I know you're all excited to learn that today, but I'm preaching to pastors. Why preaching matters, how to preach a sermon. First of all, why preaching matters. I'm going to give you two reasons. First reason, God initiates preaching of His word. God initiates preaching of His word. Look with me at Jeremiah 1, verse 9. <clears throat> Then Yahweh sent forth his hand and touched my mouth. And Yahweh said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Now what gets us to verse 9? What's happening here? Jeremiah 1 is the record of Jeremiah's call to special prophetic ministry. He's a priest given a special prophetic role as God's spokesman during the reign of King Josiah, the last righteous king of Judah. Jeremiah ministered for at least 41 years warning Judah to repent, warning of coming judgment, and, and most notably was witness to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and the aftermath. He is what is called, in both the Old Testament and New Testament, a technical term only used of one ordained to speak God's word. He is called a man of God. Why? Because a man of God is ordained by the Holy Spirit to speak on God's behalf, God's word only. We see the call of Jeremiah in verse 4. Now the word of Yahweh came to me saying, Before I formed you in the innermost parts, I knew you. And before you came out from the womb, I set you apart. I have given you as a prophet to the nations. God is motivating Jeremiah for the task at hand. God knew him. This isn't passive knowledge. This is relational connection. God set him apart. It's a Hebrew word that means to make holy, to separate him. And God has given him, literally placed or appointed him. As a prophet. So God is initiating the preaching. God appointed him. Preaching the Word of God was always God's idea, always God's plan. So the first reason that preaching matters, God initiates preaching of His Word. Second reason preaching matters, God empowers preaching of His Word. God empowers preaching of His Word. God confirms His call of Jeremiah by giving Jeremiah two visions. The second vision in verses 13 through 16 has to do with the content of the message and it culminates in verse 16, I will speak my judgments on them concerning all their evil whereby they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. But focus for a moment on the first vision which confirms Jeremiah is called to preach. Verse 11. Now the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then Yahweh said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to do it. I am watching over my word to do it. This is a beautiful vision of the branch of an almond tree. The Hebrew word for almond tree is the same root word as to watch or to be awake. They sound almost identical, in fact. The almond tree, in fact, is sometimes called the awake tree because in Israel, it's the first tree of the year to bud and to bear fruit. It means spring is awakening. You watch the tree to see that spring is coming. So God uses a play on words to associate the almond branch that God is awake and he's watching over his word to make sure it accomplishes exactly what he intends. Now, we should be very clear. I want to be as precise as I can on this. God does not empower preaching. Now, if I stop right here, you're going to brand me a heretic, and along with Chad, we'll be dragged out to the parking lot and beaten to death together. (laughs) God empowers the preaching of His Word. God never guarantees that He'll empower something that looks like preaching, that's just sentimental or experiential or man-centered or analogical. God empowers preaching that is text-driven, driven by the authorial intent of the text in the context of the redemptive plan of God, applied firmly to our lives according to the original intent of the text. Text Text-driven preaching, if I can put it this way, is driven by what God says in the text of Scripture, not by the preacher's disrespectful use of the text. Using the Bible doesn't guarantee biblical preaching. Letting a text speak for itself according to what God intended is biblical preaching. I'll just give you an example here. Jeremiah's intent with our text here is to recount God's call to him and the fact that God would bless the preaching of his word. Our application, which is the natural outflow of that interpretation, is how to preach a sermon. But we don't take the text and twist it to give a warm, sentimental meaning not found in the text. For example, look at verse 7. But Yahweh said to me, do not say, I am a youth. Do not say, I am a youth. Here's the sentimentalist sermon. Young people, you need to have confidence. You can do great things. You can accomplish God's wonderful plan for your life. No. First of all, the passage is not about you. And secondly, the passage is about preaching and prophecy given by God. It's not a motivational message for young people to have confidence in day-to-day life. And the context of this passage is the fact that God sends preachers to warn his people, to correct his people. The preached word of God is the God-ordained method for communicating the gospel and to hear from God. That has never changed and will never change. Chad mentioned this earlier, or Mark did, uh, maybe both of them. Think about even New Testament times. Almost no one owned a copy of the scriptures. It's estimated that in the Roman Empire, 5 to 10% of men were literate, less than 1% of women were literate. So preaching was everything. It was everything. And as important as the privilege of reading our own Bibles is to us, in the history of God's people in general, and in the church in particular, it's only relatively recently, that anybody owns a Bible. And it's even more recent than anybody can read it. Preaching isn't just to alter opinions or even behaviors, but it's transformative to your heart. It is the means of God sanctifying you. Listen to what some of the greatest preachers of all time have said about the vital importance of the preached Word of God, that God empowers. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said that, quote, preaching is not to whiten tombs, but to open them. John Calvin, the reformer and really the original verse-by-verse expository preacher of the Reformation, he said that the faithful preaching of the word defines the true church. Did you catch that? That if a group of people gather together to hear someone blather on, on something other than biblical preaching, that is not the church. The great evangelist Billy Sunday wrote that, quote, the backslider Likes the preaching that wouldn't hit the side of a house, while the real disciple is delighted when the truth brings him to his knees. Martin Luther, by the way, somebody uh, texted in or emailed in or something that I'm mean uh, in my first sermon. Read Martin Luther, I'm a teddy bear compared to him. But here's what he says about preaching. Martin Luther wrote that, quote, to preach Christ is to feed the soul, to justify it, to set it free, and to save it if it believes the preaching. Great American theologian, Jonathan Edwards, he preached a message called The True Excellency of a Minister of the Gospel. And he makes the point that the preacher must have light, that is, the content of God's Word, and heat, the sense of gravity and importance to the message. He says this, and I'm going to read a long quote and then give you the short version. If a minister has light without heat and entertains his audience with learned discourses, without a savor of the power of godliness or any appearance of fervency of spirit and zeal for God and the good of souls, he may gratify itching ears and fill the heads of his people with empty notions, but will not be very likely to reach their hearts or save their souls." And if, on the other hand, he be driven on with a fierce and intemperate zeal and vehement heat without light, he will be likely to kindle the like unhallowed flame in his people and to fire their corrupt passions and affections, but will make them never the better, nor lead them a step towards heaven, but drive them the other way. In other words, the preacher who is merely a lecturer will create big heads filled with knowledge and cold hearts, light without heat. And the preacher who's a showman without content will deceive his people into thinking that they're saved and if they are believers, they'll never grow. They'll stay babies. So preaching is to be light and heat, empowered by God. So why does listening to preaching matter? Why does preaching matter? God initiates preaching of His Word. God empowers preaching of His Word. Now we're ready to look at how to preach a sermon. God gave Jeremiah a, a commission, a description of what the preached word was going to do. In verse 10, God gives metaphors about construction in then agriculture, telling Jeremiah what the preached word of God is designed to do. Verse 10. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms. Now, what's the context? Right before in verse nine, I have put my words in your mouth. That's how Jeremiah is appointed. I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to cause to perish and to pull down, to build and to plant. There are six images here, and I want to use those to tell us how to preach a sermon in accordance with God's purposes for preaching. So first of all, preaching a sermon is like pulling a weed. It's like pulling a weed. If you've ever taken care of a yard... You have two choices with weeds, right? Either you get rid of it when it's small, so small that a child can pinch it out of the ground with thumb and forefinger, or you wait for it to turn into a beast with claws and fangs that you need a shovel and a machine gun to get out. In either case, it has to be pulled out. Preaching in America, I believe, has for the most part been tainted by the ear-tickling, man-pleasing sentimentality that I spoke of earlier which says that the goal of preaching is to provide people a a chuckle and a smile with maybe a, a thought or two to ponder for a few minutes after church and the consequence has been horrible the consequence is that now the culture of listening has become passive that you you walk into church expecting for me to come and open your mouth and put something in it and do move your jaw for you i have to do it all That you want to be pleased, not disturbed, soothed, not riled up, pacified, not troubled. But God said to Jeremiah that the word of God he was to preach was to uproot. It's a word that means to remove, to drive out, to tear up, to pluck out, like a weed. Jeremiah was to call the unfaithful Jew to repent and to pluck up pride and lawlessness and sexual immorality and disobedience. Now, when Jeremiah was preaching the The weeds were deep and huge and entrenched. They'd overgrown the nation in sin. And because Judah would, for the most part, ignore Jeremiah, judgment would come, according to verses 14 and 15. A faithful shepherd asked this question, what are the weeds that need to be pulled out in the people that we're entrusted with? And we could list all kinds of weeds, a sharp tongue, a low view of Christ, a dismissive view of corporate worship, a rebellious spirit, a false faith that's a weed hiding among the wheat. In his Institutes of Christian Religion, John Calvin wrote this, In forming an estimate of sins, in other words, in judging the, the weightiness of sins, we are often imposed upon by imagining that the more hidden, the less heinous they are. In other words, the small little hidden weeds aren't less dangerous, are, aren't less dangerous and destructive to your walk with Christ than the large obvious sins that everyone can see. He warns against thinking that there are the, the lesser sins, so to speak. No matter the text, no matter the topic, the shepherd is to preach with the intent of having the Lord pull weeds. And you say, that, that sounds a little harsh. Oh, he hasn't even gotten started yet. That's the easy one. Preaching a sermon is to be like pulling a weed. The second image he gives, preaching the sermon, is to be like tearing down an idol. It's to be like tearing down an idol. Jeremiah tells, God tells Jeremiah, rather, that the preached word is to tear down it's a word that means to pull down, to break down, to, to rip it down. And it's the same word used in Exodus 34, 13. You shall tear down ungodly altars. Deuteronomy 7, 5. You shall tear down their altars. Idol worship was the sin which God most warned Israel about as he made covenant with them and, and brought them to their land God's last warning to Israel before entering the promised land multiple times in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy five seven, you shall have no other gods before me. Six fourteen, you shall not go after other gods. Chapter seven, chapter eight, chapter eleven, chapter thirty one, don't go after other gods, don't go after other gods, don't go after other gods, don't go after other gods. A massive warning to Israel. A warning that crosses any division of testaments or covenants. It's a principle which permeates all of Scripture. The Apostle John warns the believer in the last verse of 1 John. And I love this. 1 John is warm, it's lovely, it's it's comforting. And then you get to the last verse. Little children, guard yourself from idols. You turn the page and that's it. That's the end. And you want to say, what does he mean? He doesn't explain. He just warns. To the preacher, my question is, are you tearing down the idols your people cherish over Christ? The idols your people cherish over obedience to his word. Now, I was asked this question once. Okay, what's the difference between a weed and an idol? An idol is a weed you've decided you like and you want to keep it around a little longer. And it is the preacher's job to call you out on that. Listening to a sermon is to be like, I'm preaching a sermon rather, is to be like pulling a weed, tearing down an idol, Third, gets even worse, demolishing a building. Now we've got heavy equipment at play. God proclaimed to Jeremiah that the preached word was to cause to perish. It means to destroy or to die. In this context, though, it means to ruin something, to make it unusable. This isn't talking about trying to renovate a life that's already been shaped by the world. This isn't talking about modifying, adjusting, tweaking, This isn't a makeover of sinful behavior or attitudes. This is a wrecking ball. And it's just swinging down to completely flatten and dismantle anything which contradicts the Lord's will as revealed in Scripture. And and this is what we have said, uh, and our position is concerning the influencer's material. It is unredeemable. It can't be tweaked. It can't be altered. It can't be edited. It needs to be wrecked. It needs to be thrown in the fire. To the preacher, you're not trying to renovate a worldly, unbiblical view of anything. I, I would never want to be in the shoes of a pastor who's trying to explain the influencer's material as being okay. I would never want to be in those shoes. You demolish it. And then you look at scripture. The preached word of God is meant to demolish everything that's dishonoring to God in your life. Now, you see the progression of intensity? We've moved from pulling a weed. Oh, that's easy. You know, no problem. To tearing down an idol, to demolishing, annihilating, bulldozing, anything that taints and pollutes obedience to the living God. But those first three are impersonal. The fourth one gets in your face. Preaching the sermon is to be like beating an opponent. Beating an opponent. Verse 10, to cause to perish and to pull down. To pull down, this is a word which means to throw someone down in the sense of defeating them, of overthrowing them. The preached word of God is meant to defeat the enemies of righteousness. It's a metaphor of battle and conflict. We see this metaphor given in detail in the New Testament concerning our sanctification, our growth in holiness. Hebrews 12.4 speaks of a struggle against sin. First Peter 5.8 and 9 speaks of resisting the adversary, Satan, by being firm in your faith. The content of what you believe. James 4, 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, so far, this seems pretty negative. Why does it seem so negative? That preaching is to accomplish the result of pulling a weed, tearing down an idol, demolishing a building, beating an opponent. John Chrysostom, great 4th century preacher, the golden mouth preacher, he's often called, perhaps one of the first truly verse-by-verse expository preachers in the history of the church, he wrote this, My work is like that of a man who is trying to clean a piece of ground into which a muddy stream is constantly flowing. When you preach a sermon, your goal is not to get people to just grasp the information. You're asking the Lord to use the preached word empowered by the Holy Spirit to uproot, tear down, cause to perish, pull down. But now that the goal of demolition has been accomplished, now that the hearts of the listeners have been softened instead of hardened, made pliable instead of stiffened, tenderized instead of cauterized, now the work of building Christ like obedience and character commences. God cont- continues his metaphors, preaching the sermons to be like remodeling a house. Like remodeling a house, the end of verse 10, to build. It means to develop or to rebuild. This is exactly the pattern of response, by the way. We see in the very first sermon in the Church of Jesus Christ, Peter's Pentecost Acts 2 sermon. He's preaching to thousands of people who have witnessed the miraculous coming of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. And first he does the work of demolition. This Jesus whom you crucified. That's demolition has been raised from the dead. He goes on to say, he's seated at the right hand of God who will soon make all who are opposed to Christ pay with their lives, that God the Father will make the enemies of Christ his footstool. And the people, now that they've been demolished in their hearts, Acts 2.37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And now the preacher rebuilds. He remodels. Peter responds and he says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The preached word of God isn't just to negatively tear away sin. It is to replace it with thoughts and attitudes and consequent actions which bear a striking and ever-growing resemblance to Christ. And I would say to every preacher if you will purposefully feed your flock a diet of biblical preaching as I've already defined it, you will create soft hearts. You will tenderize the difficulties. You'll create a people who tend to be sensitive to what Scripture says. There will be a tenderness and affection for the things of the Lord. I've been ministering long enough now to watch that glorious process in so many people. It is honestly my greatest joy. You know what I love seeing I love seeing the guy here for his third time sitting in the back with his arms crossed and his eyebrows pointed straight down at his nose and he's mad at everything. But he sticks it out and six months later he's on the third row taking notes and weeping at God's word. Working in his life because first you have to demolish the junk and then you rebuild with truth. The pastor must not be afraid to knock down displeasing walls of faulty theology or a low view of God or a high view of self. And if a faithful shepherd will do that, you will see your people becoming perceptive, discerning, wise. And preaching a sermon is to be like sowing a seed to build and to plant, sowing a seed. It means to place seeds or, or to establish something. The first four metaphors have to do with the immediate effects of preaching. And uh, all of us here who, who are preachers, we've seen this effect. We've, we've seen what it means to say something very difficult and have someone have a physical response like, you know, what is that? I, I remember preaching a sermon on the doctrine of election once and I said, God chooses you, you had nothing to do with it. And a woman who is who was in church for the first time, gathers all her stuff, and she stomped right out and slammed the door. Okay. She didn't like the demolishing part. The first four metaphors are immediate effect. But now the image of is something that's long range. It's enduring. It's, it's abiding. First by remodeling and rebuilding, and now by sowing the seed that the preached word over a period of time has been planting seeds of obedience and knowledge of the word and humility and joy and submission and love for one another, concern for the lost. And over time, these seeds take root and they grow gloriously. As a matter of fact, in case you think I'm I'm making too much of this, these last two metaphors of building and planting are precisely the same two images the Apostle Paul used when he exhorts the Colossian church to walk in Christ. Listen for the images. In Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted, there's the planting, and built up, there's the building, in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, I don't want you to miss this. We have heard from the influencers that doctrine or theology is not the priority. One local pastor who strongly supports the influencers characterized them as doing, this is his quote, non-theological discipleship. But Paul just said we're established in the faith, Hopistus, the content of what we believe. Listen, preaching is to be theological. The glorious doctrines of our faith are taught and repeated and reviewed so that we have a thorough theology proper, so that we have a commanding Christology, a noble pneumatology, a bold bibliology, a serious soteriology, and an exact ecclesiology. There's precision, there's theology. As the great David Martin Lloyd-Jones stated, preaching is logic on fire. And What did he mean by that? He meant theologic, the study of God, given with the passion that only the truth can genuinely give. Why is this image of sowing the seed at the end of God's list to Jeremiah? I would surmise that he does what a good farmer does before he ever plants a seed. He prepares the soil. He clears it of garbage and weeds and old leftover roots and so forth. He plows the soil, turns it over and over again until it's soft and ready and able to receive the seed. That's really a description of one sermon start to finish. You start with the hard stuff and then you can plant the seeds, so to speak. I'd like to speak briefly to church members and then more extensively the pastors. To church members, and I'm so appreciative that this was mentioned earlier. I was afraid I would stand alone on this. It is your pastor's job to feed you the word of God. It's his job, no one else's. You must evaluate his effectiveness based on the criteria I've just taught you from Jeremiah 1. If you know, as was stated earlier, that you're only getting crumbs from the table, then you need to confront him for being unfaithful. You need the meat of the word. Do you go to a restaurant and you order steak, potatoes, and green beans and dessert, and they bring cotton candy and nothing else? Do you, do you say, well, that's all right. We'll bring in a, a para-restaurant ministry to come in and cook for him." No, you go to the chef and you say, I ordered a steak, I don't want cotton candy, I'm hungry. This is going to be hard for some of you to hear, but if your shepherd won't feed you, shake the dust off your feet and get your family out of a spiritually starving church because you have an unfaithful shepherd that's not protecting the sheep. And listen, listen, don't put up with the erroneous idea that the parachurch organization such as the influencers is somehow the answer to true Christian spirituality. According to their own website, the local church is devalued in that the influencers believe they exist because, quote, God is calling his church back to himself. We believe God is awakening the church with the obvious implication through the influencers. We've been told multiple times verbally that the influencers exist to, quote, Come alongside the church. Let me ask you a question. Who asked you to? Who gave you that right? Who qualified you? How arrogant. Who commissioned you? The Bible recognizes two offices in the church, elder and deacon. The influencers are neither. And I'm sorry if it seems that the boat has passed you by and you're not qualified as an elder, not qualified as a deacon. That's not our problem. You don't get to insert yourself and act like you're one when you're not. Church members, you need to question why your leadership would bring in hired help or outside organizations accountable to a board of directors in the Midwest to do so-called discipleship. I'll tell you one thing, if I went to a restaurant and I saw the chef on the phone with DoorDash, (laughs) I'm not going back there. It's the pastors who are called to shepherd the flock of God among you. They are not called to be personnel managers to get others to do their job for them unqualified others who are not fit to teach. They even say they're not teachers. That's not me saying that, that's them. And teaching is the single most important thing you do as a disciple maker. Church member, if your pastors are shirking their duties, you have a responsibility. 1 Timothy 3.15 was read earlier today. The church of Jesus Christ is the pillar and the buttress, the support of the truth. And if your shepherds are not supporting the truth, you go to them and you confront them. And you say, Stop going to all these meetings. Stop trying to make me happy. Stop telling stupid jokes and stories all the time. Teach me the word of God. Stop preaching for 20 minutes. If you aren't filled to overflowing with truth Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. If Saturday night isn't the most exciting night as you wait in anticipation for the the meal and the the bounty that you're going to receive in the Word of God, then you need to confront the leaders or go. Now, for pastors, I have 22 admonitions for you. One for every year, the influencers have been in operation. The first 21 are a warm up for number 22. Number one, pastors, take your calendar and wipe it clean. Put your priority back into the study of God's word at a high level. Make prayer and the word your priority as actually reflected in your time. Number two, Stop preaching man-pleasing sermons to make people feel good. It's satanic. It's evil. It's wicked. We, we, we joke here that we take the offering before the sermon because people don't feel so good after the sermon. Number three, dust off your textbooks on preaching and start refreshing yourself on what biblical preaching actually is. What expository preaching, preaching that lays bare the text of Scripture, exposes the text, what it actually is. And trust the text of Scripture. Trust that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. Number four: preach Christ and His glories. Your top priority in preaching is not to solve the felt needs of people or make them feel good. We preach Christ and him crucified. Number five, stop thinking that your personality or your personal stories or how cool you dress or how forward thinking you are is going to change anyone's lives. Your personal ability to connect with people does not change anybody. Number six, stop making an idol of growing your church. Stop making an idol of growing your church and instead preach the word in season and out of season. What does that mean? There's a lot of debate over that. Here's what it means, uh, at least in one context. Preach it whether they want to hear it or not. Listen, if you pastor a large church and no one is getting mad at your preaching except those who think it's shallow, you're not preaching at the level you ought to be. Number seven, obey Hebrews 13, seven to remember those who taught you. Remember the great preachers of centuries past. Read them. Emulate them. See the example of their ministries and follow them. Read Charles Spurgeon. He didn't ever try to please anyone. Number eight. Preach the details. Oh, pastors are so afraid of this. But preach the nouns, preach the participles, preach the imperatives, preach the indicatives, preach the poetry, the narrative, the wisdom, the gospels, the the epistles. Train your people to engage their minds, not just coming passively for some worthless emotional stimulus. Number nine, preach the whole story of Scripture instead of misusing Scripture out of context to make people feel good. I would ask pastors this, do you know the whole story of Scripture? if I said, come up here right now, I'll give you a microphone and give me the story of Scripture, could you spend an hour doing that off the top of your head? Number 10, preach to change the mind, the heart, and the will. You're preaching to change people. You're preaching for a verdict. You're preaching for a decision. Stop worrying about opinions and start worrying about souls. Number 11, command your people to obey. Command your people to obey. Stop making indirect we statements. We should ponder this. No, you must obey the word of Christ. Titus 2.15 tells the preacher to command these things. It's a word that means to insist. That's why I don't believe in video churches. Because you can walk out from a screen, but when you're here, you have to look me in the eye as I insist that you obey. Number 12, challenge your people to the core of their souls. Challenge your people to the core of their souls. When was the last time you challenged your church? And I don't mean the sappy, sentimental, I want to challenge us to be thinking about this this week. That won't last out the parking lot, right? What a lame application. No, I want to challenge you to prove the validity of your salvation. Prove to yourself that you're not a terror, but you are among the wheat. Number 13, Number 13, I think this is I think this is showing in churches today when it's not happening. Number thirteen, pray through your entire study process. Pray through your study process, begging God. Pastors, I would ask, when was the last time you pleaded with God about the sermon you're going to preach? Plead with God to use the implanted word to save the souls of the lost who are lurking in your congregation. To grow his people in the knowledge of Christ. If you pastor a church of 50, 100, 500, 1,000, Jesus promised there would be tares among the wheat and he commanded you to preach to them and to plead for them. Number 14. This is going to sound like a repeat of another one because it is. Stop making an idol of attracting people. Stop making an idol of attracting people with anything other than grand and glorious truth. If your people are coming to your church because of your children's program or because you have a coffee bar or because your youth pastor is really in tune with the culture or you have a great lead guitarist because, 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 because then you're doing something wrong. People should be coming to your church because your pulpit is on fire with the white hot flames of the truth of God. That's why they come. Everything else is extra. Number 15. If you're only taking two hours to prepare a message, then you're either a genius or you've lost your way. I don't believe any man can genuinely do a quality study of a passage in two hours. And if you say you can, more than likely you have an inflated view of your own ability. I was talking to a man a number of years ago who called me when I worked in... uh, helped work in placement at the Master's Seminary. One of my jobs was to place men in churches. And he called me and said, hey, I just emailed you my resume. I'm, I've been a pastor for eight years and I'm looking for a, for a new gig. And I said, great. Now I looked at it. Uh, four churches in eight years. And so I said, so what What happened here? Like almost exactly twenty-four months each one. And for two hours he blathered on about just how, how it was everyone else's fault. and And, you know, he just He's, he's a wonderful gift to the church. He can't understand why anybody, and finally at the end, after listening to him, he, he said, look, I, I really want to know what do you think? Why won't people keep me as their pastor? And I said, look, it's because you're a jerk. You think so much of yourself. And pastor, if you think you can on a Saturday night throw something together that's going to be zippy and fun and cute and you're going to change lives, you're deluded. The word of God is studied with tears, with begging, with pleading, with time. Number 16, return to your training. Return to your training. Here's something that just boggles my mind. Men will spend three, four, five, eight years in seminary, acquiring more degrees than a thermometer. In seminary, you learned how to utilize the languages to understand grammatical and syntactical and lexical nuances. You learned hermeneutics. You learned historical theology. You learned systematic theology. You learned in Bible survey classes. You learned biblical ecclesiology. Why does all that get abandoned? Why did you even go to seminary if you're going to abandon all of it and farm it out to somebody with a dumb little book that he wrote thinking he heard it downloaded from God? Downloading is way easier than four years of school. Use your training. You're a trained theologian. Go back to it. Number 17. Stop hardening hearts with soft preaching. Stop hardening hearts with your soft preaching. It is hard preaching. Preaching truth unadulterated that produces soft hearts. You don't use a piece of velvet to sand the roughness of a piece of wood. You use a power sander. You don't use a butter knife to do surgery. You use a scalpel. The Bible is not a two-edged, warm story about your grandmother. It is a two-edged sword. Unsheath it. Goodness, at least just read the Bible aloud and say, do this, let's pray. Number 18, stop believing the lie of your own charm. Stop believing the lie of your own charm and that your soft preaching will coax people into the kingdom. Oh, if I'll, just, I'll just lead them slowly into the kingdom. When was the last time you terrified the lost with a sermon on hell? When was the last time you preached a, a series of sermons on hell? When was the last time you preached a series of sermons on Satan? When was the last time you warned the tares, the false converts in your congregation? When was the last time you warned believers about God's discipline? Stop worrying about pleading the stop worrying about pleasing the lost rather plead with them not with your winning personality number 19 preach first and foremost to the church to the regenerate equip them to be deadly weapons in the hands of God for a lifetime for the sake of the kingdom teach them to be able to vigorously defend their faith from scripture number 20 Stop thinking that one 25-minute sermonette for Christianettes is actually going to grow your people in Christlikeness. Preach more. Preach longer. Preach more often. You know know why people say, well, I want sermons to be short? It's because it's your fault. You didn't teach them to listen to longer sermons. The Puritans would have laughed in the face of any pastor who thought he was actually changing lives with one 25-minute sermon a week, mostly devoid of content. By the way, on top of preaching more, preaching longer, preaching more often, you should also be discipling men and women in the church. Titus 2 commands that of you, that beyond your preaching ministry, you're teaching and elevating the knowledge of the Word of God systematically. Number 21, stop worrying about what anyone thinks. Stop worrying about what anyone thinks. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher of the 20th century, he said that he spent a lifetime making friends and enemies all with the same sermons. You might say, Pastor, if I start preaching truly expository sermons that are challenging and longer, do you know how many people will leave? Brother, all I can say is man up. Let them go. Well, what if I get fired for preaching expository sermons that are theological? Well, you should have gotten fired a long time ago for not doing that. You're lucky to still have a job. So take your lumps and do the work God called you to do. Yeah, you might have a church of 4,000 and maybe you preach it down to 400 until you see who's real. And then watch what God does. But most men will protect their paycheck instead. All that is a warm-up for number 22. Stop outsourcing discipleship to groups who literally in their materials tell Leaders, they're not teachers. Stop outsourcing discipleship. How lazy are you? Stop being lazy and having others do your job. How dare you shirk your duty? God didn't say that he called some to be personnel managers to bring other people in. Richard Baxter said that he preaches as a dying man to dying men. Preach every sermon like it'll be your last. This is serious. This is weighty. This is eternal. There are people listening who will go to heaven or hell from a human standpoint, based on your faithfulness. It's life and death. Pastors, I remind you of James 3, 1, do not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. I would remind you that Peter commands pastors that you shepherd the flock of God among you. 2 Timothy 3, again, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that in context, the preacher, the man of God, may be equipped... Second Timothy 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing and His kingdom. Stop right there. You know the next three words. But this is an oath. I charge you. Swear to me that you will obey, that you will do what? Preach the word. Pastor, if you will not do these things, you've lost your way. You have forgotten your call, and God will discipline you now or in the life to come. You need to repent. But if you will do these things, you, oh, you'll find you're ready for this. You have no need for someone else to come do your job for you. Get the job done, do your duty. Church members, if they won't, get out. Pastors, it might might be difficult. It might be hard. But I hope some of you, some I can name by name, will stand up before your church and you will say, open your Bibles. I intend to begin explaining it to you. No funny stories, no gimmicks. It is the word of God today. Stop having 30-minute long sermons and start getting people into the eternal word of God. Do your duty. Do your duty. Our Father, we are humbled that you put a book in our hands that is the mind of Christ and that we may open it and that the Lord Jesus Christ has given gifts of shepherds and teachers to read the word aloud in a public setting to explain it, to apply it. I pray for our little town here, Lord. We we know we're nothing in the grand scheme of things, but you care about your church. You love your church. And there are churches here in our city, numbers of them, that have allowed the influencers to come in and attempt to do their job for them. And We would push back against that. We would ask you, Lord, To compel the shepherds to lock the doors of their studies, to put a do not disturb sign on the door, and to drop to their knees first to beg you for forgiveness for shirking their duty, and then to open their Bibles and their notebooks and their their commentaries and their language reference materials and all the things that they've been trained to do, and to seek after you and to, to plead in prayer for the correct meaning of the text and to plead on behalf of their people, and then to come out having been broken and having been shattered by the Word of God themselves, crawling to the pulpit, to come and share with their people what God has done through His Word, to shatter their own souls, to show them the light of the glory of Christ. And that as they share that, these truths begin to light up the lives of those precious dear sheep under their care. I think of one church in particular in our town, Lord. I pray for this man to repent and to come before his church with the living word of God, which is white hot and a flame, to sear the hearts of his people with truth, and reject outsourcing discipleship. Lord, our, our little tiny efforts here today will only be effective if you allow them to be, and we know that. But Lord, I pray for church members that they would honestly evaluate their shepherds according to the standard of Jeremiah 1, of 1 Timothy 3, of Titus 1, of 1 Peter 5. And if they find them seriously lacking to respectfully confront them in love, I pray, Lord, you would reform the church from the shepherds down.